Johnson and the worship team, thanks so much for leading us into worship. We have a, a few things, a few special things we want to accomplish this morning uh, before the morning message. And I want to begin by inviting uh, Scott and Kylie Meyer. Would you come on up and have a seat in the hot seats? <laughs> I wasn't planning on saying that. I thought you'd like that, Kylie. While they're coming, um, this is really for uh, Ken Olson's benefit. Ken shared a pretty amusing story that I'm going to remember for a long time. So I want to counter that story by uh, telling you that before Doreen and I moved here, this was probably six or seven years ago, we went to an all-you-can-eat buffet. And I was excited about it because it was an all-you-can-eat seafood buffet, right? And I was on a special diet at that point in my life. I eat all the food I see. And uh, so we walked up to pay, and this gal, who was not too many years older than me, said to me, will you be taking the senior citizen discount today? That's the day my life changed. Yeah, unbelievable. Before we get to uh, Scott and Kylie, if you would look in your bulletin, you will see a, a small insert entitled This Month's Book Recommendation. This is something we're going to start that will uh, be recurring month after month for quite some time, as long as it is something that encourages the church family. We're calling it Read It. Read It. Now, the initial, the, the original title was something different, but I decided you're probably getting sick of Latin words. I wanted to call it Tola Lege, take up and read. We could change it for now. Read it. And so what we're going to do is on the website, uh, Josh Clark is so kind to, to update the website for us. He's our webmaster. Uh, he will be updating the website and we'll put this uh, flyer in the bulletin once a month. And these are solid Christian books that we're commending to you. And, uh, I want to begin by commending this little book, What is the Gospel, uh, by Greg Gilbert. This is the book that Lauren Clark used a few years ago to teach a class that has probably received more positive feedback than any class I can think of in recent years. So, Lauren, thank you for that. This is a wonderful book. Uh, We as a church, as I said earlier, strive to be gospel-centered in everything that we say and do. And uh, this is very readable. It's, uh, it's a book you could read in probably uh, two or three, maybe four hours, um, and you'll receive a great deal of benefit from it. We have four or five copies available at the uh, welcome desk. So afterwards, if you want to grab a copy, they're $9.50. And if we run out, we'd be happy to, to purchase some more. So give that uh, to you for uh, you to think about. Scott and Kylie. Scott and Kylie Meyer went on a missions trip uh, not too many weeks ago. You've been back almost three weeks. It's a month now. And so we wanted to take time to uh, ask them a few questions and uh, give the the church family an opportunity to hear about their trip. So, Scott, let's start with you. Can you tell us uh, where you went and, and some of the ministries that you were involved with? Um, and I hope I say this right because I've said Guatemala before and it was Guadalajara. Uh, we went to Guadalajara, Mexico, um, and to stop real quick, I think these, uh, chairs were purchased specifically for me because pastor knows how I do getting up in front of people. I do much better against a hostile crowd, and you people are not. <laughs> um, so I don't remember the second half of his question now. Where did you go? You went to Guadalajara, Mexico. And I won't tell you what, the way I mispronounced it. Um, what's that stuff you like, Doreen? Guacamole. <laughs> I thought we went to guacamole, but it's not guacamole. And then what are some of the ministries that, that you had a chance to be involved with? Kylie? Okay, so me and five other people were in charge of setting up VBS for the kids a couple days. We were there for 10 days. And so we set up, like, um, the Bible lesson that we were going to teach the kids and crafts and games we were going to do to help um, them learn as well. That's, That's great. And it was an orphanage that we had gone to there. And so when she said uh, the kids, it was uh, kids there at the orphanage. Um, And some of the things that I had helped with were um, more of the construction projects. Uh, Being an orphanage, uh, they fall under a lot of the same rules and regulations that maybe we do here. All of the steps 
any stair or sidewalk. It had to be have yellow striping. We did, redid all that. Uh, across the street, they have a, a place where they're trying to do a community church um, uh, on a property there. We took off some tile roofing from that church and replaced that with metal roofing mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. and different projects like that. And we also had the opportunity to go into uh, three different prisons uh, there in Mexico um, and minister there. That's great. I remember uh, the first time I went to Minsk, Belarus to teach at the Bible College. Um, I'll never forget getting on the plane to go home, sat on the plane, and I buckled my seatbelt, and I started crying. <laughs> and the reason wasn't because uh, of anything, but God was doing a work of grace in the hearts of his people. How, what kind of, uh, how was God working with his people in Mexico? Okay, so I saw God not only working in the hearts of our team members, but also, like, we learned a lot from the kids. Their faith was amazing. And, like, that's something that really got me. What was really cool is when we were able to, we spoke two totally different languages. And, we, of course, we had translators. But at the end of nights when we would pray together, and they would pray for us in Spanish, and we'd pray for them in English. And just, like, singing with them and worshiping was really cool. That's great. And I brought notes because, again, I can't remember yesterday. So, um, uh, like Kylie had said, just uh, working with the kids, uh, knowing that Christ was alive in in a far-off place. Um, Before this trip, I had never had a passport, never traveled. You don't need one to get out of Linden. Um, And so... uh, to go somewhere else and just see that he is alive and, and the work that's being done. Um, and again, these kids, uh, they're separated from their family. They are orphans uh, for whatever reason, whether their parents have passed away. We heard some testimonies uh, uh, along those lines or their parents were in prison. And just to see that they have been put in a place that we might think, Ah, that's not the best place. No, this is where Christ wants them, and they are being taught about Christ. So, that's great. Whenever we go to uh, a different culture, it's uh, we get out of our box and we get stretched. And I know you were both stretched. How did how did God teach you to trust Him on your trip? So, going into this, I was very nervous. Like a year ago, I would not have pictured myself going to another country to do something like this. And so, to get to this point, it took a whole bunch of prayer and, like, thinking about it and support from other people. But, um, like, it, it was just so encouraging. And, um, like, I knew that the Lord was with us and that he was going to give us strength to be able to do this. Super. Again, this came about uh, because um, Kylie has a friend, Chloe, and Chloe came here today uh, with her dad, and thank you for being here. Um, And so Kylie had been planning for several months to be part of this. Um, Three days before they left, basically, I I had learned a couple days before that, that one of the leaders was not able to go because of a family emergency. And Kylie had asked, hey, Dad, would you go? Well, again, the trust part was, uh, and God's hand in all this, again, I had never had a passport a few months before this. But when she got one, I decided to get one just to have. And again, God used that because I wouldn't have been able to go. Um, For it to be able to work for me with work, I mean, three days before they leave, to go to my work and say, can I have this time? Uh, and to be allowed to be able to do that because uh, we were shorthanded there. Uh, getting the plane tickets, it was the last day when I when I um, inquired about going that those plane tickets could be converted into my name. And so just uh, trusting God. And again, you're going to a different country. Uh, the security, the safety there is different uh, and so all of those things. If you could sum it up for, for your church family, what would be a few of the, the life lessons that you learned, things that you'll take with you for the remainder of your days? So, like the last one, I learned to trust in the Lord completely and to pray to him about any worries you have. And also going to a different culture, you realize how blessed you really are here. And the kids just want to be loved when you see them and, like, 
we're all loved here. And um, language has no barrier. The love we share for the Lord is the same, and it's amazing. Kylie, was it hard for you to love them? No. I was it really them. easy? It was, yeah. yeah that's what I thought. It was so easy. I would go back in a heartbeat. That's great. And what I touched on before was, again, just seeing that uh, Christ is active in this other part of the world uh, that I had never experienced before and and uh, was able to see there. And, uh, again, just in that short time, the connections and the love you were able to feel for people that, again, you couldn't necessarily communicate all that w- well with, but at the same time, you connected with them personally and through Christ. Yeah. And Scott, you've alluded to it a few times about being in Linden. I think many of us can relate to this. It's really easy to get kind of isolated. We're up here in the, the northwest portion of the United States. How, how did this trip open your eyes to the, the need in the world? Uh, it just reminded me of uh, how much uh, that I sort of greater appreciate um, uh, my deeper appreciation for people such as the Christiansons, um, and I know the Costlers, others who have stepped out in faith and and taken on what God has called them to do, to go out into other parts of the world uh, so that the, the gospel can, can reach other people. That's great. Um, open my eyes. Like, like the last one, too, we're extremely blessed. And so often I take little things for granted. And, yeah, it's just amazing to see. How blessed we are. That's great. You know, we, uh, as we move forward as a church family, we're, we're trusting that this is not the last short missions trip. We're praying that in the days ahead, there will be many more trips like this that our church would, would sponsor. So I want to commend you, Scott, for going at the last minute and going with your daughter and Kylie for, uh, for planning this, uh, all the details that, that brought you to this point for your faithfulness. We uh, greatly respect the both of you. Will you give them a hand today? Thanks, Scott. Before we open the Word of God, we want to do one more thing. This is kind of a special day, right? By the way, everyone's coming to the barbecue, right? If you don't, we're coming for you, right? We're knocking your door. So uh, I want to invite my friend Natalie Horseman to come on up. Now, Natalie knew about this, so it's not a surprise to her. I'm going to have you stand right over here, Natalie. And uh, I want to begin, before we open up the Word of God, I want to do a demonstration with you. Now, you don't know anything that I'm going to do, right? When I asked her, her eyes kind of lit up like she was, are you excited to do this? Because you have no idea what's going to happen. The first thing I want to do is talk a little bit about money. Do you like money? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know what the King James calls money? Anyone know? Filthy lucre. There you go. (laughs) <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, so that's $5 for you. And you think about things in life. Do you have anything that you collect? Or anything that's real special to you? My family. Your family? Okay. Do you have any anything in the house? Like if your house burned down, would there be something you'd be really disappointed if you lost it? Your bed? Oh, yeah, exactly. I think we would all say that. You know, other people have things like like boys. Some girls have baseball card collections. Do you have a baseball card collection? I didn't think so. Uh, or some people have stamp collections. Um, I actually have a coin collection that means a lot to me. And uh, as you get older, I bet some adults, some of your mom or your dad or other people at Christ Fellowship, they may have... Um, money in a, in a portfolio. They invest in the stock market. And one of the things that I've learned in life, first, you should hang on to that $5 bill, is you can always lose that money. Like, could I see this just for a minute? Is I'll uh, put this in the wallet, and it's not going in for some reason. There you go. You know, you can put money in a wallet like this. I don't think you've ever seen my wallet, and pretty much uh, the money's gone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you all could have seen the look on her face. <laughs> Here, high five. Well, so that, that part of the demonstration is that you just lost the $5. But what I, what I want to do is I, I want to give you some more money. And I want to have you help me here. This Have you ever seen a 50-cent piece? 
They're, they're kind of hard to find. Um, you can find them every now and again. And silver dollars, right, are even more difficult to find. And then do you know what that is? That's a Mexican centavo. And what I like to do is I like to tell people that when you put the centavo under the 50-cent piece, it looks like the 50-cent piece is bigger, which might mean it's worth more. Do you think it's worth more? I think it's worth more. So what I want to do, I'll have you hold out your hand and hold it real, real firm and real tight. And I want, can you keep these coins for me? Okay. I want you to guard them with your life. Hold it real tight. Now squeeze really tight. Now I want you to, I've done this before and sometimes people drop them. So don't drop the coins. I want you to take the centavo and the 50 cent piece and put it behind your back. Okay. Now take your other hand and put it behind your back. So can you feel which one is the 50 cent piece, the bigger one, and which one is the centavo? You can kind of feel it. So what I want you to do, now turn so, so no one can see what's happening. There you go. I want you to take the 50-cent piece and put it in one hand. It doesn't matter, right or left. Don't drop them. And the centavo in the other hand. You got it? Okay. Now, I think you might be able to trick me on this. So I want you to hold out your hands like this. Okay. Now, in... I'm going to predict that in one of your hands is the 50-cent piece. Would that be correct? So hold them out like this, and I want you to only drop the 50-cent piece. See if you can tell. And I have to tell the church family that Natalie has done an excellent job by dropping only the 50-cent piece. And I didn't tell you, by the way. I should have told you this, but I think it would have made you nervous. The centavo, it, it has a lot of meaning to me. I mean, it's... You, Pick it up in Mexico, and you could ask Mr. Meyer and, and Kylie. It's a long ways away. And my guess is, even though Kylie said she'd go back in a heartbeat, I don't, I don't think she's going to go back tomorrow to get my centavo. So, Annie, I don't know why I told you that. So now that we, you can give me the centavo, it, Natalie. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Andrew, would you tell me what that is? That's not a centavo. So, um... Uh, hold on. Let me check my notes because I don't know what to do. I hope my iPad. <laughs> Where's the centavo at? Right there. This this is a quarter. I'm I'm kind of nervous when when the. The last couple of illustrate. Have you seen some of my illustrations? They didn't work, and the PowerPoint hasn't worked. Just like, oh my word, maybe I should be an accountant. You know? <laughs> no, maybe not an accountant. Maybe something else. <laughs> you know what an accountant does with money? So I, I'd be terrible at that. So, oh, uh, let's see. Um, I don't know what to do. We're running out of time. Does Does your mom have like a, a coin purse or something like that? Anything like that? Does she have a wallet where she keeps her coin? She would you go see if you... Would you bring it to me? Because I don't know if your mom's been to Mexico or not, but maybe there's something in it. Or we'll have to trade. Thanks. I appreciate that, Carrie. Carrie's kind of like, uh, what's going on here? So is it okay if we kind of open it up here? Okay, so go ahead and... Do you know where she keeps her coins? Oh, you know right where to go. Wow. So what's what's in there? Anything? Pennies, nickels. Oh man. Please, Lord. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Natalie, Natalie. I think we need to talk to your mom about something. Is is that the centavo that you were Hold on. I, I don't know what to do. Do you like this observation? Do you like this this illustration? Is it fun? Here's what I'm going to do. In the sermon today, I'm going to talk about salvation. And did you know that when, you know, I had a chance to baptize you, and I had a chance to sit down with, with your mom and your brother and learn about your faith in Christ, and so I know that you have trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, and as a result, you're going to go to heaven one day. You know that, right? I baptized you and you told the family of God about that. Did you know that no one can ever take that away from you? That your salvation is secure forever. No one can take it away. So I think you know me well enough now to know that when I do an illustration and when I bring children up here, I give 
what I call object lessons. And uh, you've seen those on my desk where they're scattered all over my desk, and each one has a different meaning. So I want to give you this 50-cent piece. Don't give it back because I'll put it in my wallet, and you know what happens with that, right? But I want to give you that, and I want to have you promise not to spend it because it's only worth 50 cents. And to put it on your desk, and every time you see that 50-cent piece, you're going to think, my salvation is secure. It will never get lost. No one can take it from me. I'm a child of the king forever and ever. Is that a deal? Thank you so much. Let's give her a hand. Thanks, Natalie. You did great. That was way, way, way too fun. Well, this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 17. I also want to uh, have the young people, the children, to be dismissed now with Mrs. Meyer. Thank you so much for Mrs. Meyer and her ministry. Turn with me to John chapter 17. While we are on the subject of security, I want to begin by sharing with you some of the most secure places in all the world. And I uh, looked this up on the internet, and I found actually the top five. I want to share three of them with you. And the first place is the number one most secure place on the planet. And just in the back of your mind, try to figure out what that might be. The most secure place on the planet is Fort Knox. Fort Knox, which is located in Kentucky, is home to the United States monetary assets and said to hold, get this, at least 5,000 tons of gold. There is a bank vault with, within a deep basement of the building that has a 250-ton door. I, I, I can't even wrap my imagination around that. That's the door that marks the entrance of Fort Knox. The second most secure place in all the world is a place called Cheyenne Mountain. Cheyenne Mountain, located just outside of Colorado Springs, Colorado. It is the command center and control, communication, and intelligence center for both the United States Command Missions and the North American Aerospace Defense Command, what you may know as NORAD. Built at the height of the Cold War, the facility is said to be sturdy enough to survive a multi-megaton nuclear detonation within one nautical miles of its center. It has blast doors that each weigh individually 25 tons. That's where you want to keep your baseball card collection, right? Behind a 25-ton door. And then the third and the fourth were not as as well-known, at least in my mind. So I want to move to the fifth most secure place in all the world, and that is Air Force One. Considered by many to be the world's most secure moving location. It has the world's most advanced flight avoidance, air-to-air defense, and electronics technology packages available anywhere in the world. All for the protection of the commander of chief, commander in chief and his entourage. Just a few days ago, I actually posted a, a short article on my Facebook page that uh, described the events of 9/11. And may I say, as your pastor, that it would be good for us, healthy for us, to remember today, uh, a day that is the 15th year anniversary. Of 9/11, I actually pulled up a video last night, late last night, that I had never seen before, of two girls in a college dormitory. Have any of you seen this? I watched about three minutes, and by the time they were screaming and yelling, I stopped it. I couldn't watch anymore. It was absolutely horrific. Well, on that tragic day, as you know, that President Bush was at that school in Florida. His team around him decided that the safest place for him to be would be in the air. And at one point, President Bush said that we are the only airplane in the air anywhere. And so Air Force One is the fifth safest place, according to experts. And as secure as these places are, there is always a chance that these secure places could be penetrated. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus said... Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You see, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Natalie and I talked about together, we possess something. 
that is more valuable than anything else in the world. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you possess the gift of salvation. And of course, in the high priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus speaks to the matter of our security. In his prayer to God the Father, we learn that our salvation is secure. And so the title of the message this morning is appropriately titled, The Vault Door, The Security of God's Elect. And with John 17 before you, I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we read our passage this morning, beginning in verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus prays, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Will you pray with me? Father, I hope that we can say together as a church family that uh, this walkthrough of John chapter 17 has been very, very humbling. God, we are also filled with joy at the depth of our salvation. We are filled with joy at the depth that Jesus went to to secure our salvation. And today, we are excited to hear about how he makes our salvation secure. God, we thank you for this doctrine before us, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. And I recognize that each one of us is at a different place in our Christian pilgrimage. Some of us are just getting started. Some of us have never heard of the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, while others have been living it for many, many years. Some people may struggle with this doctrine. Other people may have been... uh, taught this doctrine, but continue to struggle. And so I ask that your spirit would do a special work here, that your people would be encouraged, that they would be strengthened, they would be edified, that as we leave and as we go to the barbecue after church, that our hearts would be brimming with joy because of the security of our salvation. We pray these things in your son's worthy name. Amen. Let me just say by way of introduction that... The matter of eternal security is of utmost importance. I need to tell you that this is a matter that if I were ever called to a church and the church said, Oh, Pastor, you need to understand we don't believe in the perseverance of the saints. That is a church that I would never serve at. This is not a secondary doctrine. This is a doctrine that is a a close-handed doctrine. It is a doctrine that is taught clearly in the Word of God. Yet I have found that one of the biggest struggles that Christians, Christians face in this world is the possibility of losing their salvation. I won't have you do a show of hands, but but I, I can almost guarantee you that if I said, raise your hands if you have ever thought it was possible to lose your salvation, or even if you believe the doctrine, you just became so discouraged one day that you felt like your salvation may have slipped through your fingers. I would say a majority of us would say that we have wrestled with this or continue to wrestle with the thought of losing our salvation. Some of you have been raised in a theological tradition, a Wesleyan tradition, perhaps a charismatic tradition or otherwise, where you were taught at an early age that you could lose your salvation. And so the struggle is very, very real, and I'm very sympathetic to that. Some of you, on the other hand, have been raised in a theological tradition where you learned about the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, what some call eternal security. Yet despite the teaching you have received, you still continue to struggle with this doctrine. You might say something like this, is there something I could say? Is there something I could do that would disqualify me or strip me of the salvation when I first believed? You may say, is it possible that I could take a wrong turn in life and walk away from the free gift of salvation that I received? 
These are very, very real questions. And the Bible at this point gives a very clear and penetrating answer. You see, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, as one writer says, is a doctrine which lies at the foundation of all the hope which the believer enjoys. It inspires confidence in danger, comfort in sorrow, help in temptation, and is an anchor to his soul amidst tempests the most violent. This morning, as we have our Bibles open before us, I want you to see three very important truths, three very important realities that surface in the prayer of our Lord. And my prayer is that these principles, that these rock-solid realities would, you, would have you smiling from ear to ear, that you would leave today filled with joy because you know that your salvation is safe and it is secure. And if you are not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that perhaps today would be the day of salvation and that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a son or a daughter of the King and that no one can strip that salvation from you. The first, the first principle I want you to see, the first observation is found in verse 11. I want you to see what I've entitled as the provision. The provision. And in verse 11, Jesus says it like this, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. And here's what I want you to focus intently on. The next several words. Which you have given me. The word given comes from the Greek word that means to bestow a gift. And so, Natalie, I gave you a gift today. Actually, I gave you two gifts, didn't I? I kind of messed up the first one. It just it, it went away. So, so much for the $5. But I did give Natalie a, a 50-cent piece. That is a, a gift that I gave her. And so here we see that the, the Father gives a generous gift to the Son. Now, in order for us to understand this with any degree of clarity, we need to do a little bit of, of review. I want you to remember that the Father not only gives a generous gift to the Son, but He also gives Him something else. We learned back in verse 2 that the Father also gave the Son authority. So look back and let's begin in verse 1 to get the context. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Notice, since You have Given. That's the word to, to bestow a gift. Since you have given him, namely Jesus, you have given him authority over all flesh. And so Jesus has not only given the gift of the elect, or the Father has not only given the gift of the elect to the Son, he has given, he has sovereignly given authority to the second member of the Godhead. There's four things I want you to see at this point. First, notice with me the divine power of the Son. That word in verse 2, authority, comes from the Greek word that means that Jesus has the strength and the right over all peoples. Jesus has authority over every boy and every girl and every man and every woman here at Christ Fellowship. Indeed, Jesus has been granted authority over all flesh, that's very inclusive. That is to say, there is not one person who is not under the sovereign, authoritative lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus re-emphasized this delegated authority. You remember when he gave the Great Commission to his disciples. He says it like this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been What's the word? Given to me. It has been divinely granted. It has been sovereignly given from the hand of God the Father. The same word for authority is translated in the King James as power. I want to read it for you in John chapter 17, verse 2 from uh, the King James. As thou hast given him power over all flesh. 
And so there is the divine power of the Son. I want you to also see the divine purpose of the Son. For Christ has been granted divine authority to also give eternal life to all of God's elect. He is not only has this general authority over all flesh, but he has been granted authority to offer the gift, to grant the gift of eternal life to all of God's elect. Third, I want you to see the divine possession of the Son, and we learned about this last week. The divine possession of the Son. We learned this, that all of God's elect are the possession of God. Let me say it in simpler terms. If you are numbered among the elect, God owns you. Have you ever heard someone to say, someone to say in our culture, I will do with my body whatever I want to do with my body? If you ever hear that in the days ahead, I want you to remember, no, 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 no. God owns you. You do not have the right to do whatever you want with your body. Why? Because Jesus owns you. You're the possession of God. Deuteronomy chapter 7, 6. Would you look at this verse with me? I think it would be helpful for us to, to gaze with our eyes at this verse. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. The Word of God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Go back with me to John chapter 17. I trust you're there. And look with me at verse 6. In his prayer to the Father, Jesus said once again, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. By the way, this language of you gave me, later in the day, take, take five or ten minutes to read through John chapter 17 and you'll see it occur again and again and again and again. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Drop down to verse 9. I am praying for them. We learned about this last week, that if, if you are a Christian, Jesus is praying for you. You know, it's, it's, it's an exciting thing when I hear that my mom and my dad are praying for me. I have a, a dear friend in the Bay Area, pastors a church. He's a faithful, godly man. He sent me a text and he said, I'm praying for you. How do you think that affected me? Man. Love that. So it's great to have mom and dad to pray for you. It's great to have a best buddy to pray for you. It's great to have your spouse to pray for you. But now the second member of the Godhead says, I'm praying for you. Don't gloss over it. Remember that Jesus prays for you. I am praying for them. He says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. That is to say, they are your possession. Drop down to verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle says it like this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we looked at that last week, did we not? That whether you're a student, or whether you're a physician, or whether you're a janitor, or whether you're a school teacher, or whether you're a police officer, or whether you're a homemaker, no matter what you do in life, you are the possession of God for a purpose, to proclaim his excellencies. In all the earth. Finally, I want you to see something that's in your notes. And I want to make a confession to you. As I studied this sermon, I saw it, but I originally didn't see the significance of it. And a few days ago, I was reviewing my notes and I thought, oh, my heavens, there's a number four. You don't have a number four in your notes, do you? Would you add that in for me? Number four, I want you to see the divine priority of the sun. The divine priority of the Son. Look at it with me in verse 11. 
And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. Here's what I missed. That they may be one, even as we are one. You remember in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are what? One. I and the Father are one. We know that Jesus shares all the attributes with God the Father. We know that the Holy Spirit shares all the attributes with the Son and with the Father. But in John 10.30, Jesus says in most emphatic terms, I and the Father are one. His priority then is to, to unify the people of God. That, get this, that we as the people of God would enjoy Get this, the same fellowship. We will see this later in verse 24, several weeks down the road. The the priority of the Son is that we as the people of God would enjoy the same unity that the Trinity has enjoyed from all eternity. It's almost like we should do a collective, wow, think about that, perfect harmonious intimacy in the relationship from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And Jesus says, this is my prayer, that they would be one as we are one. I want to remind you of something very, very important. I want to remind you that the devil, we do believe in a devil, right? Many people don't in our culture. But we believe in a devil because the scripture teaches in a literal devil. His name is Satan, the diabolos, the accuser of the brethren, the slanderer, Lord of the flies. The devil, our arch enemy, he hates unity. He hates unity. And I hesitate on whether I should even say this or not, but it's just the truth. So is it okay if I preach the truth? I looked back in my notes over two years ago, and I preached a message on Psalm chapter 133, verses 1 to 3, that talked about the priority of unity and the family of God. And it was only a few weeks later that... It's a powerful observation that had a humbling effect on me. The devil hates unity. When God's people are united, the body of Christ works as God intended, harmoniously. That we are one. When God's people are united, the gospel goes forward in great power. When God's people are united, Christ's agenda triumphs over the personal agendas of people. When God's people are united, God is greatly glorified. So here we are, the people of God who have come to worship together. I want you to think about what would happen if we got more and more and more unified. Just use your imagination. That's the direction I believe that we're heading as a church family. To grow together. Doctrinally, practically, in our relationships where the bickering goes away, where the gossip goes away, where the slander goes away, and we are a team. I had a group of friends at Multnomah University starting in 1985. The first guy in this team was a guy by the name of Marv, a black man. He's one of my best friends to this day. And I don't know why he called me box, but he called me mini box. I was, I was very small and short and lightweight, much different than now. But he called me mini box, and I called him the black box. And then we had some other friends, and we were tight, so we called ourselves the box team. We were the box team. It was not a clique. It was not unhealthy. We were buddies. And I would never say something bad about another member of the box team. And I know no one on the box team would say something bad about me. To this day, we are a team. We were unified. We were friends. We remain friends. And is it not the same? Shouldn't it be the same in the body of Christ? We are unified as God is one.
I refer to Psalm chapter 133. Would you turn there with me and hold your finger in John 17? As a brief detour, I couldn't help but go here because Psalm chapter 133 describes the blessings of unity. And it reads like this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Is that not what you want at Christ Fellowship? To be to be any other kind of a church is absolutely unacceptable. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing of life forevermore. I want to say this in a, in a pastoral way, in a gentle way, in a challenging way. And I want to ask you, and women don't ask about your husbands. Husbands don't ask about your wives. Mom and dad don't ask about your children. This is just me. Personalize it for, for yourself. Am I contributing to the unity of Christ's fellowship? And if you are, may God bless you. And if you're not, may the hound of heaven, may the Holy Spirit of God convict you and challenge you. And may the the weight of conviction drive you to your knees and send you to the cross so that you can come to the place where you can say, I'm a contributor at Christ Fellowship. I'm a part of what it's like to be at a church that is united and one. What are the changes that need to take place in your life so that you can make a serious contribution to the unity of our church family? That's the provision. I want you to see, secondly, the prayer that also occurs in verse 11. Once again, Jesus says to the Father, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Here's the phrase I want to to capture your attention. Keep them in your name here the son has what we would coin a prayer request we all know what a prayer request is this is the prayer request of jesus christ where the son asked the father to preserve the elect he says keep them in your name that word keep comes from a greek word that means to watch over it means to take care of it means to means to keep a person in a given state And so Jesus prays to the omnipotent Father, the one who sovereignly gave the elect to the Son. He prays to the Father that he would preserve their salvation. In Jude, verse 1, Jude writes, A servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those of you who are, excuse me, called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, when you write a letter to someone, sometimes, maybe not as much as in the old days, you'll have a preamble in the letter. It's a, dear Joe, dear Martha, grace and peace to you. You see that in the New Testament all over the place. This is part of the preamble. And I don't know if you're, you're like me, but it's, it's really easy to skip over the preamble. Grace and peace to you, blah, 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 right? It's no blah, blah, blah. Why? Because we believe in the inerrancy of the Scripture. We believe in the infallibility of the Scripture. We believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture. We believe in the authority of the Scripture. Therefore, every jot and tittle matters. Shame on me for even uttering the words blah, blah, blah in the back of my mind. But it would be very easy in Jude... To, to skip over this preamble to those who are called, by the way, that's a whole sermon, beloved in God the Father and kept. It's the same word in Jude 1 as we see in John seventeen eleven. The word that means to, to guard, to watch over, to take care of. Let me say it like this, and especially if you come from a tradition where you believe you can lose your salvation. If... If any of God's elect could lose their salvation, this means that the Father refused to answer the prayer of the Son. And may it never be so. 
Last week I cited these words from Don Kistler. If a person could lose his salvation, it could only be on the basis of God's dissatisfaction with the finished work of Christ. You know, I've been in many, many discussions over the years, usually at a good coffee place, where someone who rejects the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, we will go on and on and on. Clarity. I will go on and on and on. I think in the days ahead, I'm just going to say something like this. Listen, brother, sister, if a person could lose his salvation, it could only be on the basis of God's dissatisfaction with the work of Christ. I guess we're done here. Because we know that God is satisfied. God was satisfied with the work of Christ. The Father is satisfied with the finished work of Christ. And we find, additionally, that the prayer of Jesus is in sync with the eternal purpose of the Father to preserve the salvation of his people until the end of the age. I want you to think for a moment about the implications of this prayer request. If, if you were a Christian, Jesus, once again, prays, for the preservation and the perseverance of your salvation. And we know very plainly that the Father is quick to answer in the affirmative. We've seen the provision. We've seen the prayer. I want to conclude by having you look with me at the promises, which emerges in, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 12. Verse 12, Jesus continues his prayer. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. Same word which you have given me, same word, I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Here we see that the son, Jesus Christ, promises to secure the salvation of God's elect. In verse 11, he prays for the father to keep the salvation of the elect, to preserve the salvation of the elect. And then in verse 12, he says, I promise to secure the salvation of God's elect. Three observations. One, our salvation is grounded in Jesus Christ. Warren Wiersbe has said, our safety depends on the nature of God, not on our character or conduct. I want to read those words again and let let it sink deep down into your heart because I'm convinced as conservative, evangelical, reformed believers, we, we believe the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We embrace it. We love it and rightly so. But sometimes I'm also convinced that while we believe we're justified by faith alone, we think we are preserved by how we live our lives. And Wearsby is certainly our target. Our safety depends on the nature of God, not our own character or conduct. Jesus carries out in verse 12 what he prays for in verse 11. Namely, he keeps them in your name. He watches over. He protects the salvation of the elect. And here's what blew me away. That Jesus makes this statement as if it were already an accomplished reality. And indeed, it is. Notice that he keeps them in your name with a constant emphasis on those whom the Father had given him. So our salvation is grounded in Jesus. Secondly, I want you to see that our salvation is guarded by Jesus. It's guarded by Jesus. We have these two powerful words in verses 11 and 12. He keeps us. He prays for the Father to keep us. And then in verse 12, he guards our salvation. It's a word that means to keep close watch of. It means to keep someone from being snatched away or perishing. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 says, But our Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. At the end of the book of Jude, I like to see Jude as two mammoth pillars. Doreen and I were in Seattle last Thursday, and I saw, I can't remember, five or six pillars up on like Ninth and Pike that I'd never seen before. Have you seen these massive pillars? And I selfishly thought, man, I wish I could put those in my study. That would be so cool. I mean, they're just incredible. But in Jude, we have 
on one hand, the pillar that says God keeps us, God protects us. And then at the other end of the book, this massive pillar that shoots up out of the book of Jude that says, now to him who is able to keep you, that's the word translated guard in verse 12 of John 17, who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Amen? Wow. Our salvation is grounded in Jesus. Our salvation is guarded by Jesus. Finally, our salvation is guaranteed by Jesus. Jesus says something that has caused many people to scratch their heads to this day. He says, not one of them was lost. Except, why did he have to do that? Not one of them was lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. That word lost is a big word in the Greek. It means to be ruined. It means to be eternally destroyed. It means to go to hell. And this is what we have gathered today, that not one of the elect has ever gone to hell. Not one of the elect will ever go to hell. Jesus reaffirms this truth in John 6. He says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. Never, never, never. Has one of God's elect ever lost his or her salvation? The prospect of losing one's salvation would be like a house of cards crashing on a table. The prospect of losing one's salvation would cast doubt on the promises of God's word. It would cast doubt on the character of God. Indeed, it would cast doubt on the very promises of God. But Jesus utters these words. Why did he have to say accept? Accept the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. And of course, if you're paying close attention as we study through the gospel of John, Jesus, of course, is only referring to one man. He's referring to Judas, who he labeled as a son of destruction. Jesus foretold earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 13, that one of the twelve would betray him. You remember that when we walk through that together. John 13 says, one of his disciples said to Jesus, Lord, who is it? If I were one of the disciples, I would have wanted to know. Who is the wise guy? Who's the shenanigan? Who's the betrayer? And Jesus answered, it is him to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Can you imagine what was going through the mind and the heart of Judas in that instant? Because he knew, he knew it. Judas was a false professor. He professed faith in Christ, but he never possessed faith in Christ. And as a result, Judas's apostasy fulfilled the scripture, as Jesus indicates. We've seen three very important realities today that occur in our Savior's prayer. We've seen the provision, namely, that the Father has given a generous gift to the Son. We've seen the prayer request that the son asked the father to preserve all of his elect. And finally, we've seen the promises that the son promises to secure the salvation of the elect. The truth point is very simple, but it's also very profound. Behind the vault door lies the gift of salvation that was purchased by Jesus preserved by Jesus and protected by Jesus until the end of the age. 
And over and over and over again, Scripture reminds us of this great reality. My friends, I have to say this to you. I I don't understand why people can't see it. This is not a doctrine that is built on inference. It is not a doctrine that is built on implication. It is not a doctrine that is flimsy. It's a doctrine that is ironclad. Philippians 1, six, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Probably my favorite text that points to perseverance is found in the book of 1 Peter, where the apostle says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept, that sound familiar? In heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded, does that sound familiar? Guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When you struggle, and you will struggle, with the assurance of salvation, remember this, that God promises to secure your salvation. He promises to preserve your salvation. He promises to protect your salvation. And the one who purchased your salvation is surely able to preserve it and protect it. The longtime pastor of Moody Memorial Church, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, says this, unconditional security teaches that the God who chose his people unto eternal life, will indeed lose none. They who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ will assuredly be saved. And if you're like most Christians, as I said in the opening comments, you've fought and you've battled in the Christian life. You battle temptation. You battle lust. You struggle in your marriage. Young people, you go to war with your parents. And all of these things add up. To make you begin to think, maybe, just maybe, I've lost my salvation. If you're battling with the assurance of salvation, and in the days ahead, if you continue to battle with assurance of salvation, I want to pose three questions to you. And these are questions that you can share with anyone in the days ahead that I think will encourage you. This is something I learned from Dr. R.C. Sproul many, many years ago. And here are the three questions. If you struggle with your assurance of salvation, do you love Jesus perfectly? Do you love Jesus perfectly? And do you know I've never had a person answer in the affirmative? Did you know I've never known of anyone who would say, yep, I love him perfectly. If someone ever says that to you, you can be assured of this. They're a liar. Because none of us have ever loved Jesus perfectly. But there's a second question. Do you love Jesus as much as you ought? And did you know I've never had a person answer affirmatively to that question? And I would pose it to you this morning and be very careful in how you respond. Do you love Jesus as you ought? I think all of us as Christ followers would say, no. Is anyone with me? Here's the third question. Are you ready? Do you love him at all? Do you love him at all? And if you say, oh, yes, pastor, I love him, but I am such a screw up. I love him. I want to serve him, but I'm tempted and I fail. I stumble and I fall. But the question is posed again. Do you love him at all? If you say yes, the only reason you can say yes is because the spirit of God has done a work of grace in your heart. That your heart has been regenerated, renewed, transfixed, transformed. And the only way that happens is through the miracle of the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. God's at work in your heart. This indicates that the Spirit of God has done a sovereign work of grace in your soul. So I want you to leave this morning armed with the great truth that your salvation is secure in Christ. I wish I had a 50 cent piece to give everyone. But Natalie, you're the only one that gets to 
take the 50-cent piece home. Would you remember that 50-cent piece? Would you remember that as it sits on Natalie's desk? That Natalie, as you gaze at that coin, you're going to say, nothing can ever take my salvation away from me. No person, no demon in hell, no circumstance, no situation. My salvation is secure. And so remember that the Father gave the elect as a gift to the Son. Rejoice in the prayer of Jesus to preserve the faith of the elect and revel in the great promise that Jesus will secure your salvation to the end of the age. Behind the vault door lies the gift of salvation that was purchased by Jesus, preserved by Jesus, and protected by Jesus unto the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, two verses filled with so much uh, amazing reality. Thank you for your commitment to preserve the salvation of your people. And God, I pray for your people right now that you would assure them with your presence, that you would bolster their confidence in your promises, that they would leave today smiling from ear to ear, knowing that their salvation is secure. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, would you cry out to the God of the Bible? God, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that without Jesus, I would spend eternity in hell and that I would be justly punished for my sins. But I realize that Jesus came He came to die for me. That's a a theme that we sang about a few moments ago, that Christ died for me. And on the third day, he was raised from the grave. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. The work has been completed. It is finished. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you save me from my sins, save me from the power of sin, save me from the penalty of sin? I look forward one day to being saved forever from sin's hideous presence. Thank you for the gift of salvation. I affirm today that salvation belongs to the Lord. And now, God, as we sing this final song, may you fill our hearts with assurance. May you grant us courage to believe the promises of God. May we remember that our salvation is safe in your vault. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.